We begin today a admittedly brief walk through the book of Revelation. I shared with my Bible study group this morning that uh, in my day, in the, back in the 70s, when I was a teenager, we seemed to be obsessed with Revelation. You could hardly go a year without there being a Bible study or a sermon series or something on Radio Bible Hour on the radio or television talking about the book of Revelation. And all kinds of attempts to try to understand what does it mean? What are all these symbols represent? And what does it have to say to us? Well, that's nothing new. For 2,000 years, the church has read this letter, this extended letter from Jesus through John to the seven churches in Asia Minor to determine what does it mean for the church today. Maybe, probably not, maybe one of these days we'll realize that there's some things in the book that we're not supposed to know. That God intentionally put things there so we'd have to trust Him. But the one thing I want us to learn over the next six weeks is that regardless of, of the detail and the things that we may not understand, clearly there is one absolutely clear message that God gives to His church through this book, the book of Revelation. And that is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This was 95 AD, give or take a few years, and Domitian was on the throne in Rome. The church had just really begun to face serious opposition. Christians were being rounded up and taken to the gladiators. They were being taken to the lions. They were being thrown into prison. They were being sent into exile. This was what we call the pre-Christian world. They were a small minority living in a pagan society. And isn't it interesting that as the Lord would have it, this is the time when we are studying Revelation as a church family. When again, now today, we look at our world and we're, for all intents and purposes, a post-Christian society. And the church, once again, more and more, is becoming a minority in a predominantly pagan world. And we too can get ourselves distracted. This morning in Sunday school, in our Bible study classes, we looked at the first eight verses and how God presents himself and gives them comfort in who he is. I wonder sometimes if we have grown so accustomed to Jesus, our friend, Jesus, our companion, Jesus, our shepherd, all of which are good images of who Jesus is, but have we so wrapped ourselves up in the Jesus of his first coming that we've forgotten who he is in his second coming? And so I believe our task this morning is to listen with our hearts as well as with our heads to hear who is this one? Because if the church was going to have any encouragement in the midst of persecution and suffering, if they were going to have any hope that they could survive and even be victorious, they were going to have to see who their champion is, who their captain is, who their true kurios, their true king really is. And so as soon as John finishes his prologue at verse 8, he begins with these words. I, John, your brother... And partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. John says, 
I want to remind you that I am your brother. I am a partner with you in everything that you're going through. Now, we had a little pop quiz in my Bible study group this morning about who this John was. Most of us remember, this was most likely the last living member of the 12 apostles. The only one left, as far as we know, that was carrying in his memory the stories of having seen Jesus face to face, touched him, talked with him, ate with him, followed him, listened to him, and understood that he was and is God himself. But he says, I also am your brother. And let me tell you something. If anything will give you some encouragement when you go through a tough time to remember that even the apostles went through suffering. Even the pillars of the church suffered because of their faith. No one is excused from having to go through times of difficulty. Matter of fact, the apostle Paul tells us that anyone who will be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ will face persecution. It may not be death, may not be something drastic and radical, but there will be signs that remind us that we live a different kind of life than the world lives. And John says from the very beginning, I want you folks in the churches to understand, I am with you. I'm with you in suffering. I'm with you in the endurance that it takes to hold up the kingdom. And that he was on Patmos because of his testimony, most likely exiled there. It was about 40, 50 miles out in the ocean from the coastal city of Ephesus where John had lived, and now he was there in exile. Probably wasn't too terribly harsh, but it wasn't a vacation. Um, it wasn't Hawaii, I can pretty well guarantee. <laughs> he probably didn't have to bang rocks. He was probably in his 90s at this point, but he definitely could not be around his family and his friends. He had to live in exile on this island. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, meaning on a Sunday, and being in the Spirit can mean different things, but most likely it just means that he was spiritually attuned, as we often do on the Lord's Day. We get up in the morning and we turn on Christian music, and as we're getting dressed and thinking about church, we try to push the other things out of our minds so that the Spirit can speak to us as we come together to worship, as we come together for Bible study. And John says, I was in that state, I was in the place where I was listening and wanting God to speak to me on the Lord's Day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet that says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches that are listed. Now, was it last year or year before last? We did a Sunday evening study on the seven churches. We know that those churches, if you list them in that order, make a semicircle. I should turn this way. If you start at Ephesus, they circle all around the main trade routes. And this is the order in which the letters are given. But I don't think that's as important as recognize the fact that those seven being a perfect number, seven being the perfect number, represent all of the churches down to this day, including this body of believers that calls themselves the First Baptist Church of Waterloo. And he says, I want you to hear what I have to say. So John turned to see who it was that was speaking to him. And he sees this one. Like the Son of Man, it says in verse 13. And listen to the qualities of it. Dressed in a robe and a golden sash wrapped around his chest. Not a sash around his waist like a laborer would have so that if they needed to, they could hike their robe up and fold it under so they could get on their knees and work in the fields. No, this was a person of prominence, maybe even dressed like a priest that has the golden sash across his chest, signifying the fact that he is a person of honor and respect and majesty. And John sees this shining white robe, this golden sash across his chest. He sees 
His hair white like wool, white like the snow, not because he is decrepit and old, but white showing timelessness and the respect and dignity of age, the very phrase that had been used in the book of Daniel to describe God himself, shining with light emanating from him to the point that his hair was like the only two pure white things that they had in the ancient world, snow and lamb's wool, that were as white as white could be. His eyes were blazing, not with a fire, but blazing with the beauty and the ability to see what was going on, everything, sort of like that eye of Sauron, but not malevolently, watching to protect his children, seeing everything that happened to them, knowing them, but also watching for them, lest if they would fall, he could correct them and bring them back to where they needed to be his feet like bronze shining again emanating light bronze was only worn by soldiers on their feet to protect their feet and to help them to be strong and to stand their ground firm feet represent direction signifying not only christ's power and holiness but also his resoluteness to be and do everything for his church A powerful voice that sounded, it says many waters, a cascading of water. Some people think a waterfall, but i got to tell you, if you lived around the Mediterranean, it probably was more of the roar of the waves. Constantly beating, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. They never turn off the sound machine at the beach. And the water flowing and beating against the rocks on the shores. And that sound that could not be ignored and could not be stilled and could not be silenced was the voice of Jesus speaking, and it could not be ignored. In his right hand, he has these stars that we later understand represent the messengers, the angels, the essence of those seven churches that represent all of the churches in his right hand. The hand that both symbolizes grasping and protecting the right hand, the hand of power, the hand of majesty, the hand of glory, the hand of Christ. This sword that comes from his mouth, not a literal sword, not some kind of thing sticking out of his mouth like an overlong tongue, but rather a picture of the power of Jesus' words. The word that John used for sword here was not the little short sword that a Roman soldier would have. It was a Thracian sword, a sword that would be long that would usually be used in two hands to swing and cut away at the enemies that would as his people would stand behind him and be protected. It wasn't a jabbing sword. It was a swinging sword. And his word was powerful, able to cut and and sharpen and trim and conquer. And to sum it all up, as it were, John says, his face was radiant. It was shining. This is the image that John creates. And I believe in my heart of hearts that in that moment, as he saw and took all of that in, everything from the hair to the eyes to the voice to the robe and the sash to the feet to the mouth to the hand to the face, he suddenly is transported 
60 years back into his past when he was just a young man with his brother James and their friend Peter walking up the side of a mountain with Jesus, talking to him just like they always had. Yeah, this is Jesus. This is our teacher. This is our buddy. This is our friend. This is our guy. This is our rabbi. We know this man. And they got to the top of the mountain, just the four of them, and suddenly the Bible tells us in Matthew 9, Jesus was transfigured in front of them. And he began to shine. And suddenly he was bathed in light. And the voice of his father says, this is my son. And suddenly they realized, we don't know who this man is. We don't know who this man is. We thought we knew him. We thought we had him figured out. We thought that he was just a carpenter from Nazareth who had a corner on the market of understanding God and understanding God's ways and God's word. Now we realize we don't even know who this man is. And Peter in his confusion says, oh, I'm so glad we're here. And and, and here's Moses. Here's Elijah. Let's build some little places and we'll have us a little dinner party. And they suddenly look and everything is gone. And they're back to Jesus in his little woven robe again and his hemp belt around his waist and his sandals on his feet. Dirt underneath his fingernails. And they look at each other and they say, what just happened? And I believe in my heart of hearts that John carried that image of Christ in his heart. And here, 60 years later, he sees his dear friend again, the one upon whom he laid his head on his breast and said, who is it that will betray you? The one that heard his dear friend as he's dying on a cross say, behold your mother, and to Jesus' mother saying, behold your son. John sees him. And what does he do? He runs up and embraces him, right? He says, it's so good to see you again, Master. No. What does it say? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. If anything tells you about the overpowering significance of this vision, it is that verse. Because here's John who has outlived all the other disciples and probably all the other people who had seen Jesus face to face so far as we know. The last remaining eyewitness. And he sees his Savior. And he falls on his face. Realizing again after all these years I still don't really know who he is. Not in his fullness. Not in his glory. Not in his majesty. Not in his power. And Jesus reaches over And with that same right hand that was holding the churches in protection, he lays his hand on John and he says, don't be afraid. But do you notice he doesn't say, don't be afraid because I'm nothing to be scared of. Let me tell you, when we see the risen Christ in all of his glory, it will be terrifying. No, the reason Jesus says not to be afraid is because of who he is. He says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. That wonderful ego emi in Greek. The same thing that was the divine 
tetragrammaton in the Hebrew, the word that described God. I am the first and the last and the living one. He says, look, I was dead and now I'm alive. But not just alive to die again. I'm alive forever and ever. Death has no more control over me. I've conquered it. I have won the victory over death. And now in my hand, I hold the keys to death. I'm the one that decides who comes under Domitian's sword. I am the one who decides who will live and who will die. And I hold the keys to all of eternity in my hand. So don't be afraid. There's nothing for you to fear if you are my child. There's nothing for you to fear if you are my brother or my sister. I am in control. So John, I want you to write down what you see and what you hear because there are people out there who are afraid. They've lost their focus on me. They have forgotten who I am. Don't afraid so many of us live our lives in fear we're afraid of what's going on in the world around us everything from washington to waterloo city hall we are afraid of what is happening in the financial world we are afraid of what's going on in our own lives our middle name is fear and so we pray that's what the bible tells us we're supposed to do pray And we pray and say, Lord, take this fear away. Lord, take me far away from fear. And we don't realize the fact that that is not the answer. That is not the prayer. The prayer is, Lord, give us strength. Give us courage. Give us encouragement to move forward. Do you think David wasn't afraid when he saw Goliath? But instead of saying, Lord, take Goliath away, he said, give me strength as I go out to meet him. Don't you think that early church was afraid when the persecution came? But they didn't pray for the persecution to stop. They said, Lord, help us to be faithful, to preach your word, no matter what the enemy may do. I know that you're afraid sometimes. I know you're afraid because you don't know what's going to happen to mom next or dad. I know you're afraid because that child of yours has gotten away from God and you feel helpless to bring them back. I know you're afraid because your marriage is struggling. I know you're afraid. Jesus puts his hand on your shoulder and says, don't be afraid. Here's what I'd like to ask you to do. I'm going to tell you just a minute. And I want to ask you if you would please to bow your heads and close your eyes. Every one of us. Would you do that for me? Just bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you as best you know how within the limits of our finite minds to picture in your mind what that resurrected Jesus looks like to you. He probably doesn't look like the picture behind me. What does he look like to you? Look at him. Not the humble man of Galilee, but the powerful, mighty, ever-living God. What does he look like to you? Picture that. His hair, his eyes, His clothing shining, his feet, his voice, his hands. Can you look him in the eye? Now, if you've captured that image in your mind, just look toward him. And what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I'll tell you the first thing that came to my mind when I did this exercise myself. Just keep your eyes closed. Keep looking. 
It was, oh, Jesus, forgive me. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for all those times that you spoke to me and told me what I needed to do and I decided I knew better than you did. I'm sorry for those times when I ignored your word even though I knew what I should do or should not do. I forgot. I forgot who you are. Please forgive me. Now let him walk over to you where you're kneeling down in his presence. Because I have a feeling if your vision is like mine, you're on your knees. Let him put his hand on your shoulder and say to you, Bill, Mary, John, Julie, Steve, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the ever-living one. There is nothing that can happen in your world that I do not know about. There is nothing that can happen to you that I do not have under my control. I will be victorious. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega, the A, the Z, from eternity to eternity. I have been, I am, and I will be. Do not be afraid. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you for this image of Christ and our opportunity in our own mind's eye by the help of your Spirit in whatever way you chose for each of us to picture the risen, victorious, conquering Christ. No longer humble, no longer dirty, no longer impoverished, no longer suffering. Now he is the ruling, reigning Messiah. And he says, don't be afraid. Now open your eyes and look up here just for a second. I wonder what it was like for John just after he saw Jesus transfigured. And all of a sudden, he was back to his normal self. If God has allowed you to experience what I've prayed all week long, you would experience in your mind, you have seen an image of Christ that you don't look at real often this morning. You've seen an image of Christ in his beauty and his glory and his majesty and his power, his eyes sharp, his voice unconquerable. And now we open our eyes and we come to a wooden table and a little cloth and little plastic cups with grape juice in them and little square pieces of bread. But we can't take these elements 
the same after what we've just seen. We see Jesus, at least in our mind's eye, hosting this table. And we see his hands scarred from his life as a carpenter. We see his robe made of just plain homespun cloth. We see his sandaled feet. We see his beard and his hair. And the only thing that we recognize from our vision is that look in his eye. Almost a wink. You know the real truth, don't you? You know who I really am. Oh, let the world say that I'm just a good teacher. Let the world say that I'm a mysterious man. Let the world say that I'm an anachronism. Let the world say that I'm an anomaly. Let the world say that I'm a fool. Let the world say that I died for good riddance to bad rubbish. Let them say what they will say. You know who I am. And when you take this cup, and when you take this bread, it won't be just some routine, some ritual. It will be Latent with meaning because you've seen who I really am today. And so I'm going to invite our deacons, if they would, to come and join me here. I want to invite the praise team to come and prepare to lead us. The deacons, you can just come and sit. We're going to sing together because before we take this bread and this cup, we need to make sure our hearts are ready. And we're going to sing.